Hello and welcome to this week's Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. I'm Tash. I'm Becky. And I'm Emma. Hello. Aloha. Buenos dias. (laughs) (laughs) You were trying to think of a really good one, weren't you? Yeah, I was going to say good evening. Is it buenas noches? But then I don't know if I'm mixing up two languages. No, I think it's buenas noches. I think it is. I think it is. There we are. Well, buenas noches or buenos dias, depending on what time you're listening to us. Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who knows? How are you, lovely ladies? Good, thanks. How are you? Also fine. Absolutely extraordinary. That's how I am. <laughs> I, th- I do feel that the more you press on the fact that you're fine, the less fine you feel. <laughs> So if if you actually one day just re- reply with a Sean, yeah, fine. It actually means that you're actually pretty good. No? Possibly. That, you might have broken the code there, but who knows? It's a mystery. Yeah. Let's leave the mystery. I am extraordinary. In fact, I don't think life gets any better than this. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Life is great. Yes. I love <laughs> life. Have we got any... Listener stories, Bex? Any emails through? Hold on. I don't have any listener stories, but I do have a listener email that I can read out. Go on then. Right. So, I think this is because... Right, this isn't the email yet. This is me. I think we mentioned that we're drinking tea a lot on the podcast. Possibly. But, so, we have a tea question. So, the email goes, I have a question about tea. Like, what kind do you all drink? I've tried baking tea because I get cravings for stuff that people talk about. So I looked up uh, what y'all would use and Google said black tea. I went to the store and bought some. But when I made it, it tasted like freshly brewed sweet tea that I just poured milk into. Is that how it's supposed to taste? (laughs) I'm going to say no, that's not how it's meant to taste. No, because sweet tea. Have you had that before? Well, I think sweet tea is like Lipton peach tea, isn't it? Surely. I think so. I don't know if it has a flavour in it, but it's like a really sweet tea. It's really nice. Is it? It doesn't taste the same. You need to find some Tetley or some PG tips. Oh, Yorkshire tea. So I'm a diehard Yorkshire Yorkshire tea. tea. Yeah, Yorkshire tea. I've actually recently changed the way I make a cup of tea. I say recently in the last two years. And... It has changed my tea drinking game. Well, now I'm intrigued. What what have you done to change it? So I used to be a tea bagging. Tea bagging? Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit <laughs> early, isn't it? We've only just started. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to put the tea bag in the mug, put the hot water in, walk to the fridge. By the time I've come back from the fridge with the milk... It's when I take the tea bag out and then put the milk in. That was the extent of my brew of the tea, which was maybe like 30 seconds. Yeah. So then somebody made me a cup of tea and it was so good. You know, like when you have a drink and it's something you drink all the time. It's a bit like when somebody cooks you a meal when you're the primary person that cooks. It doesn't matter what the meal's like, but it's just good, isn't it? Because you haven't done it. Yeah, I don't know. A good, mm-hmm. a good cup of tea, though, it feels like it's hugging you all the way down. It honestly was the best cup of tea I've ever had in my life. So I was like, can you please explain to me how you make your cup of tea? As if, like, I'd never made tea in my life. So first of all, it's got to be Yorkshire tea. 
Yorkshire Gold is preferable, but that's quite spenny. So, you know, I'm just a, an original Yorkshire tea girl. Um, it needs to brew for at least four minutes. I'm going to say three minutes minimum. Yeah, like a good strong brew. And then you add as much milk as you need to make it the strength that you need in terms of like milkiness. I just thought, oh, I don't like strong tea. So I will have it not strong and like just a little bit of milk. Whereas actually you're better off having it strong and then adding more milk to taste. But now I like really strong tea and I don't have that much milk in it anyway. Like I just have sort of a plop of milk. But yeah, elite. And honestly, it's it's a game changer. I also don't drink sugar in my tea, so... Well, sweet enough. Yeah, that's like a preference. I feel like this is as fascinating as our mushroom conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I had a revolution a few years ago, a bit like you. You kind of turn up your tea-making game. It has to be brewed. And a revelation? Taste. Yeah. Or a revolution? Both. Both. Why not, not both? both? It was that big. <laughs> that big? Did not hear... When you change the way you make tea, it is like a revolution. Yeah, and then when you go to someone's house, and not not really to someone's house, but if someone else makes you a tea the way that you used to make tea, you kind of look down and be like, oh, peasant. Yeah. Peasant tea. Swill. Swill. <laughs> but yeah. Well, no, not that judgy. But yeah, I, I judge internally. You're definitely that judgy. <laughs> definitely that judgy. <laughs> Maybe. I'd like to say never, ever, 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 ever heat the water up in the microwave. Oh, my God. And never, ever, 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 ever add the milk before the water. Yes. The only time you can do that, potentially, is when you have a pot of tea. Yeah. You can add the milk into the cup before adding the tea from the pot. Yeah. But the milk should not touch the tea bag. Never. (laughs) <laughs> never for more tips of drinking tea with tasha and becky yeah please tune into our new podcast <laughs> jesus yeah but the milk like tasha says the milk must never touch the tea if ever that happens a british person somewhere dies it's true <laughs> emma you don't drink like english tea like that do you you're a herbal tea girl i'm all about the herbal tea indeed yep yeah that's another kettle of fish tune in next week for kettle, <laughs> kettle corner with this podcast right so i'll finish the email so they've also said that they've updated their spotify so that they can leave us a review so we've got five stars oh, thank you thank you very much Thanks. and you guys are great this is one of the few podcasts that i actually like i hope you guys continue and grow to the popularity that you deserve oh bless Aww. thank you we agree that's really, that's, that's so sweet. Thank you. The new sound effects are amazing and really help. Whoop! Yep, I bet you. I'm. I was waiting for a comment on the sound effects. I'm glad that you got one. <laughs> well, the new sound effects are amazing and really help get into the vibe of the scary stories. However, the laughing sound that Emma uh, used for the demon unfortunately sounded like a very oh reverberated fart (laughs) (laughs) i think that's reverberated (laughs) i knew i was saying that wrong i was like oh gosh i've never gone from being spooked to busting out laughing so quick do you know what he's caught me that was exactly what it was 
<laughs> ben farted into the microphone. You were like, that sounds like a demon. I'm using that. <laughs> it was still amazing and entertaining. 10 out of 10. Oh, thank you. What a lovely email. Yeah. And then he's got a, a song guest for, but I think we read it out last week. What was last week's song? Happy birthday. Oh, was it happy birthday? Mm. It must be this week's then. Okay, well, we can go ahead and do that. Tasha, what was it? What was my song? Yeah. A, B, C. Easy as one, one two, two, three. three. That's the only part I know. Do, 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 <laughs> do, 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 baby, you and me. Yeah. So that was ABC by the Jackson 5. Mm-hmm. Boom. Did he get it? No, this answer is for the is for the one afterwards that we've just released. So I'll keep it. Oh, okay. Week. So next week. Sorry, I meant to say the email was from Mac. So thank you so much. ABC, I got Nicole and Ruth. So well done, ladies. Well done. I got Sebastian. Sebastian. Under the sea. Under the sea. And that was it. Yeah. I didn't get any for that song. Quick Tinder with Tash? Yeah, quick Tinder with Tash. Put on that sweet, sweet jingle. Sit down, you boys and girls, and everyone in between. Story time. Tash has stories for you, both funny and obscene. Did she swipe right, swipe left, or find out he had a rash? We're about to find out. Because it's Tinder with Tash. So, would you like master and slave or married man? Right, so we either have master and slave relationship or a married man. I want to be your slave, I want to be your master, please. Okay, master and slave, 100%. Master and slave. Yeah, master and slave, right. So I matched with this guy recently on Tinder, like he was nicely dressed, didn't have much on his profile. We matched and he messaged really quickly and I was the last one to match. So technically, you know, in unwritten rules of Tinder, the last person to match is the first one to message. He messaged me before I had a chance to message him. And like, we were chatting back and forth. It was quite like nice conversation, like a regular conversation. It wasn't weird or anything to start. So then it got to like the whole, oh, what are you looking for here on Tinder thing? I said, ideally, I'm looking for a relationship, but want to take it slowly. Told him all my usual jargon of like, strong, independent woman, busy, blah, 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 all that jargon. And he turned around to me and said, he is looking for something quite particular. And I was like, okay, shoot, tell me, tell me what the deal is. He goes on to tell me that he'd like a master and slave situation. Which one would you be? I would be the slave. I was like, okay, tell me more. Tell me more. (laughs) And to be fair, I'd be like, I'm, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. I can't see you as a slave though. I think, um, yeah, no, absolutely not. But I didn't know whether it was just like in the bedroom or if it's like a whole, like all the time thing. Yeah. So he went on to explain to me that essentially it would be for my pleasure, but I did have to call him sir the whole time. 
Mm. Which oh, at least I prefer to daddy. Oh, 100%. Daddy. daddy. No, daddy. <laughs> so I was like, what do you mean? At the end of every sentence that we text, backs and forwards, I've got to put sir. And he was like, yeah, so I tried it. <laughs> and I've never felt so awkward in my life. It, it's not natural, is it? You wouldn't say somebody's name at the end of every sentence, would you, Emma and Becky? No, Tash. Imagine if we did that, Emma and Becky. So it was every sentence. And if I dropped it off, he was like, I think you forgot something. And I was like, oh, sorry. (laughs) And then um, you'd be more of a brat than a slave. Just don't tell me what to fucking do. Exactly. (laughs) You'd have to be a brat or a, um, or like a little, maybe, maybe you would be the, the mistress. So I said to him, if like we were dating, we got, got together, am I expected to call you that out and about? And he went, yeah. Oh, I, said, I don't think I'm the person for you, hon. Listen, he sounds like a fake dom because that is something that you would agree together on the terms. Also, really awkward. Like we're in Nando's and I've got to say sir to you. Behave. A like. lot of it is just, I'm sure, is just in the bedroom. And really it's the it's the submissive that holds the power more because they can stop it whenever they need so to stop it. So this is what he said to me initially. He was like... Becky seems pretty clued up on this. It's quite suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> I say good for her. <laughs> My understanding of those sorts of relationships is that, is that you, it is about dominance, but actually you are, you hold all the cards because if you're uncomfortable with something, you say stop or whatever safe word you may want to have. So anyway, it was a bit weird. And then he went on then to say that he also enjoys pet play which I had no idea what it was. I was like, I'm not wanking a dog. Like, that's not for me. (laughs) Yeah, no. He likes a woman to bark and act like a dog. And he asked me to send him a voice note of me barking. Oh, wow. That's when I blocked and deleted him. Honestly, my vagina has never been drier. (laughs) That is terrible. Yeah. How many of these weirdos are out there? So many. I'm like kink shaming to each their own. But can Tash just find a normal guy, please, for the love of everything holy? Uh, To be fair, I really don't think you're asking for much. Because really, you're asking for like a decent guy who has a job. Like he's not like, you know, just going to sponge after you on you. Yeah, Yeah, a bum. Who's a nice person. And who doesn't want you to bark? Yeah, he <laughs> doesn't want me to bark. Doesn't want you to bark and Jesus. send it to him. So weird, That's crazy. isn't it? Yeah. But that what is... I just don't understand what gives him the impression that I am down for that. What happens if one day you match with the perfect guy? Everything, you know, good looking, really good banter, blah, 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 bloosh. And then you find out he's in prison or something like that what would you do then i mean i have maybe met up with someone that's been to prison before haven't i oh yeah yeah i suppose it depends on the reason though why no because i think people just lie 
Did I tell you about the guy that told me he went to prison? I can't, I, I I can't, can't remember. remember. Do I do it now or should I do it next week? Shall we save it for next week? Because yeah. we're already like 20 minutes in. Yeah. And that'll make people tune in next week, find out about the guy who went to prison. Woohoo! But where are the normal guys? Where are the nice normal guys? I don't know. I think I'm waiting for them all to get divorced. We'll find him, Tash. We'll find him. Thanks. We will. Right. Do you want a ghost story? Yes, please. Works out well then, because I've got one. (laughs) (laughs) I think some people would be disappointed if we didn't have one ready. This story, I hope, is going to scare the shit out of you, because it scared the shit out of me. I'm going to be talking about the Screaming House. In May of 2001, Stephen Lachance needed to find a new place to rent for him and his three kids to live in Union, Missouri. His lease was soon up on their tiny apartment and they were about to be homeless. Life had not been easy on the Lachance family. Stephen's wife and mother of his children had just up and left them, basically just abandoned her family. He was now a single father with all the responsibility that comes with it. And I am going to struggle throughout this episode because La Chance is French. It is, isn't it? Well. And I'm going to want to say La Chance all the time. Yes. I find I do struggle reading English sentences with words like that in it. Yeah, because my brain automatically wants to say La Chance, Chance. but it's La Chance. La Chance. La Chance, yeah. In desperation, he had answered every ad he'd come across for a new house, and it paid off. One evening, he received a call from a woman telling him she had a house to rent. It was a large, old house in very good condition, and she said that there was going to be an open house that coming Sunday if he wanted to come and see the house for himself. He remembered the ad he'd replied to. It read, Three-bedroom house for rent. Full in-town living, near most schools and the city park, perfect for families. A full country kitchen with up-to-date amenities. Large living area with original woodwork. Two bathrooms with mudroom, full basement with fruit cellar attached. Large front porch and backyard, perfect for children. The right house at the right price for the right family. If interested, please contact blah, 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 blah. He remembers thinking that he'd go and check it out, but by the sounds of it, it would be way out of the budget for the family. Sunday came around and he went with his daughter to see the house. He half expected it to be an old rundown shack as he had found out that the rent was $600 a month, which was more than reasonable. But to his surprise, they pulled up to a beautiful big white house and the inside was just as impressive. There were cherubs all around the ceiling in the living area, all in original wood. The landlady showed them around, and they weren't even put off when they saw the butcher's shower in the basement, which is apparently somewhere where the men of the house would wash the blood off themselves after butchering pigs. Nice. Lovely. Stephen asked his daughter what she thought, and she immediately said she wanted to live there. So he filled in the application and gave it to the landlady. She asked him if he understood the responsibility that comes with living in an old house like this. Oh yes, replied Stephen, without giving it a second thought. It's beautiful. 
I shall get back to you then, she replied, before shuffling off to show some other people around. It was almost like she was giving a museum tour and not just showing people the house. She was a very odd lady, Stephen thought to himself. There were quite a few people there, so he didn't imagine that they would get it, but you never know. When they arrived home, a few odd things began to happen. At the time, of course, Stephen didn't think anything of it, but with hindsight, these were probably early warning signs that the house of their dreams might be more of a nightmare, Mm. literally. Mm. He was awoken that night by his young son screaming and running into his room. He's in my room, he said. There's a man in my room. Stephen, thinking this was just a bad dream, reassured his son that no one was there as they both went to check and sure enough, no one was in the room except Stephen's other son who was fast asleep. See, no one's here. It was just a bad dream. He's not here anymore, said the boy, but he definitely was. I wasn't dreaming. Stephen tucked him in tighter and said he'd be back in a minute. He was super thirsty and wanted to grab a glass of water. On his way back to his son's room, he thought he saw the shadow of a man running in the hallway. He turned the lights on, but of course, nothing was there. He laughed at himself, thinking he was letting his kid's nightmares scare him. He said one last goodnight to his son and went back to his bed, only to have his own nightmare. Or was it? He couldn't be sure. It felt very real, but the logical part of his brain decided it must have been a dream. He heard someone say, Look at me. From somewhere in the room. Look at me. The voice said again. See me. It was very dark in the bedroom and Stephen sat up and asked, Who's there? No reply. So he asked again, Is someone in here? Silence. He laid back down to go to sleep and felt pressure on his chest like someone was pushing him down on the bed. You know you want to look at me. Stephen remembers it was then that he was hit by the smell, the most foul smell he'd ever experienced. Look at me, for I am glorious. Stephen managed to whisper, please, God. God isn't here. God doesn't exist. You said so yourself, haven't you? The pressure on Stephen's chest became more and more intense. Look at me, the voice ordered. He could see it. He could see its glowing eyes in the dark. He saw the horrible white hands come close to his face and wrap around his neck. God isn't here. It's just me. Stephen said the face he saw looked like Christ, only if you imagine Jesus had been possessed or had gone mad. With that, he woke up shouting no, and he had to repeat to himself over and over it was just a nightmare, but he wouldn't fall back asleep that night. A week later, the memories of that horrible dream had faded. He got a phone call from the landlady who was really excited to tell him that she had decided to let him and his children live at the house. She wanted to meet him at a restaurant to sign the paperwork, which Stephen found odd, and he was disappointed because he wanted to see the house again. But he went and he signed his name on the dotted line and that was that. They were all set to move in. That weekend was Memorial Weekend and the family were all excited about the move. They packed up and moved the following Friday. Everything went to plan and before they knew it, all their belongings were now inside the big old white house. 
As Stephen was moving the few last bits inside, a car stopped. The driver rolled down his window and said, I hope you get along okay here, and then drove off. I don't want him to go. (laughs) (laughs) That was weird, thought Stephen, but I just assumed it was one of his new neighbours offering him a welcome. Steve, turn around, babe, don't go. (laughs) That first night was fine. The family were exhausted from the move, and so it wasn't really until the following day that Stephen had a chance to really have a good look at things. He noticed that all the inside doors had locks on them. Nothing strange to that. Only these locks were on the outside of the doors, as if they were trying to keep someone in and not out, which is what a normal lock does. He shrugged it off and continued putting stuff away and settling in. His daughter had picked a large picture of two angels for the living room. She thought it would match the cherubs, and so he started to put it on the wall. Once hung, he turned to go and do something else, but he heard a crash and looked around to see the picture on the floor. Not thinking too much of it, he hung it back up and walked off to go and do something else, when he heard it crash to the floor again. Now he was puzzled. What was going on? He hung the picture a third time, saying out loud, Stay there, damn it! This time, the picture stayed put. His daughter then called him out to the porch to look at something. He went and she said, Look at this, pointing at an old man walking down the street. As he got to the house, he switched pavements and then switched back once he'd passed the house. No one wants to walk in front of our house, she said. Isn't that weird? Stephen stayed outside for the next three hours and every single time without fail, people would cross the street in front of the house and then switch back. He even attempted to say hello to a few, but they just sped up and ignored him. Maybe it just wasn't a very friendly neighbourhood, he thought. You're right, Tash. Yeah. (laughs) I'm doing the gritty teeth thing as I listen. (laughs) The family all went inside for food and the rest of the day was without incident. On the Sunday, everyone went to church, but were in a rush to come home because they had planned to spend the day in the garden doing some tidying up outside. This was a huge thing for the Lachance family as they had only ever had a little balcony. So now to have this garden was super exciting. They got to work tidying up leaves and mowing the lawn. Stephen noticed that the trees seemed to be losing their leaves as if it was autumn and he found that strange and thought he'd ask the landlady if she knew about it. He asked his youngest son to go down to the basement to fetch a hose pipe so they could clean off the path and the porch. He went off to get it, but just a few moments later, Stephen heard his son scream at the top of his lungs. He, of course, ran inside to find his son in a puddle of his own pee in the kitchen. What's wrong? What happened? Stephen asked. Something chased me up the basement steps, he replied. What was it? I don't know, Daddy, but it was big. Stephen just put this down to the little boy being frightened of the basement and the other two were quick to start teasing him about the basement monster. They're wankers. No one likes a basement. Well, Stephen soon put a stop to that. I think he must have, like, thrown them the don't-you-dare look. Yeah. 
The rest of Sunday and Monday went fine. All was well. The family was buzzing about their new home. The daughter was planning how to decorate things and the two boys were happy about the proximity of the park, thinking they could practice their baseball. It was a really happy time. Sadly, though, it wouldn't last. The following week was the last week of school for the kids before the holidays and Stephen had a busy week with work. Each morning they would all set off to go about their day and every evening they would return and all the lights in the house would be on. Now Stephen blamed this on his kids, but they denied it saying they had definitely turned everything off. On Friday Stephen made sure once everyone was in the car to just do a quick check in the house making sure all the lights were off and they were. But when they came home every single one was on. Stephen was scared there was no logical reason for all the lights to be on unless there'd been an intruder. So he carefully checked each room. Nothing. Then he heard his daughter call from the living room, Daddy, it's freezing in here. He wondered what she was on about because he was sweating. But when he stepped foot in the living room, he understood. He could feel the drop in temperature instantly, almost 30 degrees. But it wasn't just that. The whole atmosphere was off. He felt like pulsating electricity in his body, making his hair stand up and his skin get goosebumps. And then, just like that, it left. The room got warmer. He could visibly see the temperature go up on the thermostat. That was the first time Stephen felt it, whatever it was. That night, all the kids slept in their dad's room and Stephen didn't sleep at all, worried and frightened by the strange occurrences he'd seen and felt that day. Sunday came and the family was sat in the living room talking about the following week. Stephen had to take a trip for work and the kids were going to go and stay at their grandma's. They had all their bags packed and ready to go. Stephen saw something move out of the corner of his eye. He looked in the direction of the movement and he saw a man standing there in the kitchen. He couldn't make out any features as the man was shadowy, even though everywhere was well lit. He noticed that even though he looked solid, he was made up of some kind of dark mist that swirled around to make his form. Stephen looked away, certain his eyes were playing tricks on him, and then looked back up, but to his horror the figure was still there and now was moving towards them. It stopped in the living room, and then just melted away into nothing. Stephen was petrified, but also realised he had three kids to look after, so the kids had all had their backs to this thing, so they hadn't seen it. Yeah. So he said as calmly as possible, Let's go see Grandma now. You're all packed, so why not? The kids looked at him as if he was losing his mind. But he just said, come on, it'll be fun. He thought there was no reason to panic everyone, so very calmly and quietly they began to leave the house. Just as they were leaving, they heard a loud, guttural scream come from inside the house, as if a man was screaming in agony so loud it could be heard by the entire neighbourhood and it made the local dogs bark. Stephen decided now would be a good time to panic and everybody ran to the car. (laughs) They all piled up in the car and that's when his youngest son said, Look, Daddy, the basement monster is in the top window. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
And sure enough, as Stephen looked up, he saw the dark, misty figure in the bedroom window watching them leave. No, thank you. Oh, that's just a um, like in like in a like in a horror film. It's always the top window, like it's scary, scary. Yeah. And then you look away and look back, and they're not there. After a week away, the memory of the horror Stephen had witnessed had somewhat faded. I don't think mine would fade. <laughs> no, me neither. He had spent the week trying to find logical explanations, and to be perfectly honest, he had spent all his money on the deposit for the rent and the moving, so financially leaving was really not an option. He decided to take his family back into the big white house. The weekend went by without anything major happening, and Stephen had taken a long weekend to make up from being away all week. He and the kids went exploring in the garden shed and they came across boxes of other people's personal belongings. This seemed like the kind of stuff people would take. So Stephen mentioned it to his parents who said they thought he really should just ring the landlady and ask about everything because it was all getting a bit too weird. So he did. Even though he felt incredibly awkward, he asked if any of the past tenants had mentioned ghosts in the house. The lady replied that one tenant had said that she'd seen her dead father, but that she just thought she wasn't quite right in the head. Most of the things in the shed were hers, but she couldn't get her to come and pick them up. She then added that another male tenant left in the middle of the night and she'd never heard from him again, and some of the boxes were his. Stephen asked how long ago did those tenants leave the house. Oh, no more than a year, came the reply. He ended the phone call, but he can't say he was reassured. In fact, quite the contrary. I'm not reassured either, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of his time off with his kids was without incident, and he began to wonder if it was just a one-off thing, that everything would be okay. He was on the phone to his mum when he heard the doors rattling. He shouted up to the kids to stop playing with them, but the doors only rattled louder. So he shouted up again, stop playing with the doors. It was then that his scared-looking daughter appeared from the living room. Dad, I'm in there reading and the boys are both asleep. As soon as she said that, the temperature instantly dropped. The same electrical charge filled the air as did the stench of death. And then came the screaming. Quiet to begin with, but getting louder and louder. It was a male's voice like before. The whole house began to shake and Stephen could hear something ginormous coming down the stairs. Boom, 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 with every step. He knew he had to go and get his boys. He shouted down the phone to his mother, please come, we need help. He hung up and ran to his boys' room. He could feel something was behind him, but he was too afraid to turn around and look. The bedroom door wouldn't open. It was jammed shut. Stephen threw himself against it until it finally flew open. He said to his eldest son to grab his brother and get out of the front door. All the time, the family are deafened by the screaming and the loud booms of footsteps that are shaking the entire house. There's another scream now, that of a child. Stephen's daughter was frozen in fear. He couldn't get her to move and he ended up having to slap her to get her out of it, to run out of the door with him. They could hear all the doors slamming inside the house as they rushed out and closed the door behind them. 
They jumped in the car and drove away from the house just up the street to meet Stephen's parents, but where they could still see the house. The whole family sat and watched the house as a black figure went from room to room searching for them. What the fuck is happening? This is just like a film. I am so cold right now. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm in the cold room too. That was the last night the family would ever spend in the Screaming House. They'd lived there 13 days in total. The kids never went back. And Stephen would always take someone with him to pick up their stuff. And without fail, whoever he took, they all heard something. Disembodied whispering, bangs on the floor, or a scream. When Stephen handed over the keys to the landlady, she said, Some people are meant to live in an old house like that and some people aren't. I never thought you were the old house type. And I guess she was right. Stephen was haunted in his dreams by the entity's screams. He sees a naked, blood-covered man washing off the blood in the basement shower. He hears it breathing, heavy, laboured, and grunting. A year later, someone he knew said that the police had been called to the house as a family fled in their nightclothes. Obviously, the newest tenants were living a similar hell to him and his kids. Three years later, Stephen posted the story online and it, of course, became very famous and eventually he ended up being contacted by the person who was living at the house at the time he published his story. She was called Helen and lived there with her husband, Charlie, and their daughter. She seemed to be having even more problems than the Lachances. But she did not leave the house. Financially, they were stuck. Stephen agreed to try and help her, even though he was still plagued by nightmares and those godforsaken screams. Helen explained that she can hear someone breathing near her when she's alone in the house. Oh, I hate breathing so much. (laughs) That she can hear footsteps coming from upstairs and coming down the stairs. She hears whispers and sees stuff move by itself. The gutters on the house catch on fire for no reason. The light bulbs are constantly blowing and the transformer in front of the house blows up every few months. Far, far worse, Helen is convinced that the thing in the house killed one of their pets, a kitten. When Helen went searching for the kitten, she found it dead, with a broken back and neck, as if it had been beaten or thrown against something. The family also felt something trying to push them down the stairs. She said once the police turned up in the middle of the night after receiving a suicide call. She was alone in the house at the time and had absolutely not called anyone. She feels constantly watched and when she leaves, she comes back to all the lights on and all the doors open, even though just like Stephen, she is sure that everything was off and shut. Stephen finds a paranormal group called the Missouri Paranormal Research Society to try and help Helen, but it only makes things worse as Helen appears to be under a psychic attack. She begins having homicidal thoughts towards her family. She begins to use bad language that she would never have used before. Her eyes turn black, indicating some form of possession. She ended up spending some time on the psychiatric ward. Her husband wasn't much help during this time, as he was brought up to leave such things alone. So Stephen became Helen's only real help. 
On one occasion, she tried to kill her husband with a knife, at which point he left. She even turned up at Stephen's door with a gun, shouting and screaming at him to come out. They eventually managed to get the Roman Catholic Church to do an investigation of the Screaming House, and they issued a 156-page document stating the haunting to be demonic infestation, oppression and possession. Helen eventually moved out of the house to go and live with another one of her daughters, and with therapy and the help of a priest, she regained her sanity and went on to lead a normal life. Stephen started going to church again and regained his faith, and as for the house, the last thing I could find was that the landlady is still searching for new tenants, or should I say victims, for the screaming house. And there you go. I almost feel like she's pawning them off to them. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like dealing with the devil kind of thing, if you know what I mean. Mm, I definitely think so. It was mentioned at some point that she would never be there during night time. She'd only go during the day. Mm. And uh, I think she even then wasn't overly comfortable because she asked to meet him in a restaurant. So she obviously knew. Like she knew the house wanted souls or something and she was like feeding them. Yeah, oh, as if she was maybe swapping them for like eternal life <laughs> or something like that. Some sort of weird, weird deal. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? But a house that screams, how much would you shit your pants? Many times. I mean, I feel like I want to shit my pants right now and my house doesn't scream. <laughs> but it might. Well, don't. Because we've still got Becky's story. <laughs> that was really weird then. I was, You'll have to see if you picked anything up. Because I swear I thought that my husband had kind of opened the door and shut it really fast. Because like a, like a breeze just, just came across me. And like the whole room, it was really weird. Oh, stop it. I mean, I am freezing. And all my windows are shut. Like... Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, it's really freaked me out, that one. But... You know, I love a good, I love a good horror story. <laughs> yeah, it's it shat me up that one too. So I would like to watch the film of that though. Uh, I've, there probably is a film or some kind of a documentary of some mm. kind. It's a pretty famous story. Anyway, I say trailer, and then we get to some light-hearted murder. Yeah. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> We cordially invite you to escape to a marvelous tropical paradise. The beaches are pristine, and the parties are almost too hot to handle. Welcome to beautiful Blood Rose Island. Come to Blood Rose Island and party the day away, but watch out. If you don't catch the ferry by midnight, you're stuck until morning. And when the party ends, the fight for survival begins. Read Blood Rose Island, a startling novel by Amy Cotto. Fans of A Perfect Getaway and Touristas will enjoy this island thriller that will keep you on the edge of your seat until the very last page. Blood Rose Island by Amy Cotto. That's A-M-Y-K-O-T-O is available now on Kindle Unlimited and in paperback. Find this and other thrilling novels by Amy Cotto on Amazon.com 
or follow her on Twitter at TV Fanatic Girl. That's TV underscore Fanatic underscore Girl. Blood Rose Island by Amy Cotto. It's a vacation to die for. <laughs> All right, that trailer was great. Thank you. Um, for the trailer. I'm still getting over Emma's story, which has horrified me. Just imagine when I had the sound effects. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, be careful of the fart. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't any demon laughter, was there, so? No. I think there was a few squeaky noises from me and Tash just going, ah. So <laughs> maybe you could leave those in. <laughs> What have you got for us this week, chick? Well, well it's, <laughs> it's the story that what I thought we were both doing last week, if that's okay. But we weren't. But we didn't. And I had a look and there wasn't really much that you could have put in anyway, so I don't really know what you would have spoken about, so <laughs> it probably wasn't the best one to collab on anyway. It wasn't as good as Herb the Perv. Not many things are as good as... Herbert the pervert. If you know what we mean. Yeah. Like, yeah. obviously, he's awful. Yeah. But it was a good story to tell. I don't know how to dig us out with that hole. Let's move on. Yeah. Right. So there we are. Are you ready? Are Pumped. You I'm here. Ready. Fucking do it. Let's get ready, ready. Let's get ready, ready. Let's get ready to rumble. Yeah, we sing that song every every few episodes. <laughs> Sponsor us. <laughs> and, and deck, national treasures. Yes. <laughs> I had the biggest crush on deck for years and years. Did you? Spanning back to SM, is it SMTV Live. Yeah. Absolutely in love with the man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, SMTV Live was... One of the best, oh, such good program. So, my story then is about the Velisca axe murders, which is one of the most horrific unsolved murder cases in American history. The incident took place, surprise, surprise, in the small town of Velisca, Iowa, on the 10th of June 1912. The gruesome murders involved the killing of eight people. So Villisca, Iowa was a small, peaceful town with a population of approximately 2,500 people at the time. The town had a strong religious background with many residents attending church on Sundays. So I feel like that's every small town in American films. Yeah, sounds like it. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You can picture the houses and the judgy judgy churchgoers. I mean, even the Simpsons go to church on a Sunday. They do, yes. One family that lived in this small town was the Moore family, consisting of Josiah B. Moore, his wife Sarah and their four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd and Paul. They were well-known and respected members of their community. Josiah Moore was born in 1868 in Illinois and moved to Iowa with his family when he was a child. He grew up in a farming family and later became a successful businessman in the town of Villisca. He was known for his hard work and entrepreneurial spirit 
and he owned several businesses, including a hardware store and a grain elevator. Sarah, so the wife Sarah, uh, was born in 1873 in Iowa. She was the daughter of a prominent family in the area, and she married Josiah in 1899, and that's when they had the four children together. She was known for her kindness and generosity, and she was an amazing mother and an active member in their church. Herman, the oldest child in the Moore family, was born in 1900, a popular and well-liked teenager who enjoyed playing baseball, spending time with his friends, and all the teenagery stuff. Catherine, the second oldest, was born in 1903, and she was known for her love of music and her beautiful singing voice. Boyd was the third child, born in 1906, and he was described as a happy and energetic child who loved playing with his siblings and spending time outdoors. And little Paul was the youngest, born in 1910, and he was known for his sweet disposition and his love of animals. So cute kids. Sounds like a stand-up family. Yeah. Yeah. They liked taking part in anything that the town was doing, and they were involved in various local organisations and events. They had no known enemies or disputes with anyone in town. After all that, this is what brings us to the evening of the 9th of June, 1912. The Moore family attended the Children's Day programme at their church. After the programme, they returned home. Staying at their house that night were two local little girls, Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were friends with them of the Moore children. That night, the Moore parents and all six children that were staying in the house that night all went to sleep, blissfully unaware of the horror soon to be upon them hours later. Mm. Early the next morning, on the 10th of June, 1912, Mary Peckham, the Moore's family neighbour, noticed that the Moore house was unusually quiet. She had not heard any sounds from the house, such as children playing or the chickens being fed. So, nosy as fuck neighbour. Like, super early in the morning, what what was she... I kind of was thinking, like, what was she expecting them to do? But I suppose in 1912, people maybe got up a bit earlier. (laughs) Especially if they've got chicken to feed. Yeah, they've got chickens and... I think that's just what it was like. It used to be like that, didn't it? You got up with the sun and you went to bed when the sun went down. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if I didn't see my neighbours for days, I wouldn't think, I'd just think, oh, they're away or... Oh, this is the next day, though. I wouldn't think of it. Yeah. Well, it'd take me ages to notice that my neighbours weren't there. Yeah. Let's just say that nosy neighbours in these types of situations are actually a really good thing. So the lack of activity in the house made her suspicious. So she contacted Ross Moore, so Josiah's brother, to check on the family. Ross came over. Once he got to the house, he entered the home to see it eerily quiet. And then he looked around a little bit more and discovered a very gruesome scene. The entire Moore family had been brutally murdered with an axe. Oh, my God. Josiah, Sarah, and their four children, and even the two young girls, Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were staying overnight that night, they were all butchered in their beds. All were found with multiple cuts to their heads and faces. 
and the killer or killers had used like the blunt end of the axe at the back of the axe to bludgeon them to death. Oh, Jesus. I don't know what's worse. I think the pointy end. If you're going to get axed to death, I'd rather they kind of go right through. <laughs> kind of just kind of destroy as much possible. Lights out. Bam. Yeah, quick. Yeah. I mean, if you've got to go, I'd rather it be quick. Mm. The murder scene was horrific. Blood spattered everywhere throughout the house. The victims were all found lying in their beds. No sign of that any of the eight had awakened before the killers struck. That's weird. Yeah. All faces had been covered with various items of clothing that the killer looked to have picked up from the scene. Bedding had been drawn over their bodies so that they were covered from head to toe when they were found. How come nobody woke up? I don't know. That's so odd. Because you'd think, like, being bludgeoned to death, you get a scream or two in, right? It's so weird, isn't it? Mm. The parents look to have received most of the killer's fury, especially Josiah, who had been beaten to the point that his face was just mush. Just nothing really much left of him. The two Stillinger girls were found in the downstairs bedroom located at the northwest of the corner of the house. Ina, the youngest of the girls, was like laying on her back with her legs fully extended. She had been struck on the top of the head with the blunt end of the axe, but she had not been struck repeatedly. And her sister, Lena, the eldest of the two, was the only victim who had apparently been touched by the murderer as a bloody print was found on her leg. She was found approximately one-third of the way down the bed, lying on her right hip with her hands raised above her head in a defensive position so that she was the only one that had woken up. Bless her little heart. Yeah. The axe used in the murders was found in the room with the two girls leaning against the wall. It had been cleaned, but blood and hair still clung to its handle. And there was a load of bloody clothing, like, all strewn around the room as well. All of the windows in the house were completely covered as their shades were drawn to their sills. So all the shades were down in all of the windows. All of the windows were also locked except one, which was blocked by a sewing machine and also had spider webs around it. So that window hadn't been opened in some time. Yeah. Both the south and west doors which opened onto the porch, were sash doors. Sash doors means that there's a window part of the door. Okay. It's not like a fully block solid of wood. So the window parts of those doors, he'd pinned a ripped skirt against so no one could see in, indicating that the killer had taken their time at the scene and planned the attack carefully. So this brings me to the investigation. So before we found all that out, and the police put thing, everything together. The investigation. Look, the bearing in mind this is the early nineteen, the early nineteen hundreds. Yeah, early nineteen hundreds. Pretty early on in uh, whole crime scene preservation and stuff. The investigation into these murders was one of the most extensive in Iowa's history. But it started off pretty fucking bad. 
you know when there's a crime scene, what's the first thing that you do as a policeman, woman? Cover your feet for footprints. Yeah, you preserve the crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you must I'm cover like, your feet. <laughs> no one wants to see those. Yeah. But... I was like, is this a, is this a trick question? <laughs> Tasha's like, don't wear sh- jazzy socks. <laughs> if you do, cover them up. I know what you mean. You meant that, though. You meant, yeah, cover your... So you don't contaminate so you don't the crime contaminate, scene. Exactly. Yeah. You were on the right track. So um, back then, due to lack of forensic technology and techniques available at the time, many people were allowed to enter and exit the house before it was secured as a crime scene. So I'm talking every mother and whatever, whoever's walking by. Every Tom, Dick and Harry. Exactly. Gary was there. Tom was there. Tom, Dick, Harry, like he said. Everyone was there. Darren from the club. Oh, Darren. Darren from the club. Was definitely there. Everyone got the little tour of the murder house while the murdered family members were still in there. Just everyone. Everyone. Loads of people went in. All right, Becky, we get it now. <laughs> but the point is... The crime scene's been destroyed at this point, right? Absolutely. So as a result, many potential pieces of evidence were tampered with or destroyed including bloody footprints and handprints that could have been left by the murderer, potential murder weapons and other forensic materials that could have been useful in identifying the killer. The uncontrolled access to the crime scene may have also allowed the killer themselves to come back in and have a look, remove items, you know, making it difficult to determine what evidence was actually left behind and what had been taken away. Probably getting off on the fact that everybody's in such a panic as well, because, you know, yeah. it's obviously not right in the head. Yeah, but if you you went and murdered a family and then was like, oh, shit, maybe I left some stuff in there. Oh, yeah, they're having like a day trip where I can go and have a little walk. Open about. house. Yes. Come and see the corpses. Yes. Five dollars, five dollars. Isn't it weird how fucking morbid humanity used to be? What do you mean, used to be? We still are. Look at this podcast. (laughs) Sorry, are you not listening to what we talk about every single week? Yeah, we're talking about it. But if you had the opportunity to go into somebody's house when you know that they've been murdered with a fucking axe, are you going to go and go, oh, yeah, I want to go and have a look? No. No. Especially not with children. Exactly. Not actually, I think there's a difference as well of seeing photos of it and actually seeing it. I don't even want to look at the photos. Not of, especially when it's kids. I just don't want to. No. I don't, it's not really my thing to gawk at axe murder pictures. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But like the executions and stuff. Come on, pack your picnic. Let's go watch somebody get their head lobbed off. Family day out. What was that about? Oh, I think it was just normal. But why? They loved it. They were like, "Yeah, get his head off." But don't you th- <laughs> don't you think that's fucking weird? Yeah. Yeah. Now, but I can see how it was normal back then. How? Well, everyone did it. Well, it's like um, oh, what do you call it? Them circus. Uh, fr- well, they, they used to call them freak shows. 
Exactly. That's also horrible. Awful. Come and look at all these poor people, you know, with deformed bits or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, they just loved it back then. So weird. So weird. So weird. So moreover, due to the lack of standard procedures, uh, forensic techniques used during that era, the investigation was further complicated. For instance, law enforcement officers were seen handling the victims' bodies without gloves. They also allowed many people to handle the weapons and other items found around the scene, which could have contaminated the evidence and caused cross-contamination. To be fair, could they, like, lift fingerprints and stuff back then? That might be a stupid question, and of course they could, but could they? I don't know when that came into a be a thing, but yeah, I mean... And it's not like they had a fingerprint database or anything, is it? Well, no, there was no database, or I don't even know if they had any way of, of comparing them. But I suppose if you had someone who knows what they're doing... Hold on, when did that come into play? Oh, well, it goes back... Well, in China, perhaps as early as 300 BC. Oh, okay. Well, that's me told then, isn't it? Uh, But in the United States, it became more of a thing since 1902. So we're within that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was 1912, 10 years after. So they were just fucking about with everything. To be fair, I think they're just small town. They were overwhelmed. And uh, probably a little bit excited as well. It was probably like, oh yeah, murder house, woohoo! And wanted everyone to come and look. Oh. Uh, yeah, but I think they were definitely uh, in over their heads, the little small town sheriff's department. Yeah. So all that massively hindered the investigation. No shit. Yeah. They did, however, find that the killer had struck the ceiling in some of the rooms, leaving slashes in the plaster. What, from where he was raising the weapon? Yes, where he was just about to dig it into some children's schools. That's intense. Later analysis of these marks on the ceiling and the angles of the axe wounds on the victims led to the conclusion that the killer had swung the axe with their left hand. So whoever the killer was, they were left-handed. Contrary to any rumours, both in 1912 and up to today, there was no evidence at the scene suggesting that the killer had hidden in any of the closets that were there and waiting for everyone was asleep. Yeah, I don't know. But no footprints, no cigar or cigarette butts and no tobacco juice were found because apparently that's part of the the rumours that were around. Unless they just think, no, there's no possible way that a killer could have waited that long without smoking a cigarette or chewing some tobacco juice. I'm not really sure. But you said all the doors and everything were locked, right? Yeah. yeah. And the only one that wasn't hadn't been moved because of the cobwebs. How the fuck did he get in? I don't know. Unless they let him in. Yeah. Unless he had a key and locked on the way out. So over the years, there has been many suspects... But no one has ever been officially charged with the crime. Some of the most notable suspects include Frank F. Jones, a prominent Villisca businessman who had a rivalry with Josiah Moore, but like a friendly business rivalry. It wasn't like cutthroat. 
Apparently he had a rivalry with Josiah Moore and the father of the Stillinger family, so those other two little girls that were there. Some believe that Jones hired a hitman to carry out the murders, but he died in 1918, taking any possible secrets about the murders to his grave. Another suspect was Reverend George Kelly, a travelling minister. A reverend, eh? Reverend. Who was arrested and tried for the murders in 1917, but was ultimately acquitted. Kelly was known for making strange and incriminating statements about the murders. Uh, Another guy was Henry Lee Moore, a notorious serial killer who was active in the Midwest during the same time period. Some believe that he, you know, just through rumours and stuff, nothing ever really connected him to the murders, but some believe that he was responsible for the murders. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's plausible. He's a serial killer. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there was William Mansfield, a transient labourer who was in Villisca at the time of the murders, Some believe that Mansfield was a serial killer who committed similar crimes in other states. Mansfield was arrested in 1916 for a similar axe murder in Colorado, but the charges were later dropped. In 1917, he was committed to a mental institution after attempting to kill a woman with an axe. He died in 1954, never admitting to the Viscilla murders. He sounds like a good fit, though, doesn't he? Yeah, he does like an axe. (laughs) So despite these and other suspects that I haven't mentioned, no one has ever been convicted of the Villisca axe murders. The case remains unsolved to this day, and the tragic deaths of the Stillinger family and the Moore family continue to capture the public's imagination to this day. That's about it. (laughs) That's about it on my story. You can go and visit the Axe Murder House. And I didn't really find much information on it. I'm sure Emma would have been a lot better than this than me. But yeah, you can go and visit and pay for like a little tour. But I had a look at Google reviews and someone said that they'd travelled over an hour and they were only in the house for about five minutes, so... Well, I can't imagine there's much to see, is there? Yeah, I mean, it's not... I mean, the bodies aren't still there, so thank God. No, it is supposedly haunted, but I have looked at this story before and there wasn't really, like, a proper haunting Story. story to, you know, to tell... Yeah, well, I, when I looked into it, it was basically those ghost hunter people going in and, you know, getting scared at, at stuff. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a lot, load of bad energy in that house, absolutely. Well, yeah, no doubt. And they never got justice, so whoever's done it is has died winning. I think one man went to visit it, do a tour... And then he killed himself or stabbed himself or something like that. Like the, that night. Oh, God. As if he'd been taken over by some kind of dark energy. But yeah, spe- I imagine it's a very spooky place. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the spookiness comes from the story that you just told. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
I think you can stay there as well. Oh, I would not be down for that. Yeah, and also it says, you know, that it hasn't been touched, uh, you know. They've tried to keep it all close as possible to the crime scene, but by the sounds of it, how would they know? Because every fucker has been in there messing around with stuff. I think, yeah, it's the vibe of the house and knowing what not knowing what's happened there that would make you... That would freak me out by itself. I wouldn't need any any extra ghosts flitting around to make me even scared. No, it's definitely got some bad juju. Yes, shush. There we are. Well, thank you very much, Becky. Thanks, Bex. Thank you. I'm not going to do an axe murder for a while because I feel like we've been... Uh, they're everywhere at the minute. Axe murders, bombs and stuff. So I'm just... Uh, Gotta lean away from that and find a good, I don't know, some ass. It's hard when you're doing murder to find something lighthearted. I was gonna say a good, a good what, a good murder? Hey, maybe a survival story. Haven't had those, one of those. In oh, a, we a haven't bit. had those in a while. It brings it up a bit, doesn't it? It does. I shall no doubt return with something equally terrifying. I cannot wait. So that's something to look forward to, right? Becky. What? A horror song then. Go on then. Yeah, we're going. We're going. In the deep dark void where the shadows hide, we're reaching out for something to find. Our voices echo in this endless night as we try and escape the fear in our minds. But the more we struggle, the deeper we fall. The weight of the darkness suffocates us all. We are in the shallow now but it's not where we belong. Drowning in the blackness of this endless song. We're falling deeper and we can't hold on. Our hearts are shattered and our hope is gone. Ooh. Well, I have no idea. Oh, I know what it is. Anyway. Yep. To answer Becky's horror song, you can contact us via all our social media or our email that I will put in the description mm-hmm. of this episode. I think that's about it. We can leave the people to it. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, guys. Don't kill people. And keep it weird. Bye. Like we do every week. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I was absolutely in love with um, the lead singer from Blur. The lead singer from Blur? I know what he looks yeah. like, but I've forgotten his name. What's his name? Damon Albarn, I think. Damon Albarn. I always want to say Albran, but no, that's the cereal <laughs> yeah. that makes you go poops. <laughs> yeah, makes you poop poop. Never eat shredded wheat. Oh, he was gorgeous. My grandma loves Albran. I thought you were going to say, my grandma loves David Albarn. <laughs> and I was going to think, oh, Christ, I know I'm old, but... Would you have taken that as my grandma being kind of hip and cool, or you being old and grandma I would have definitely taken it as me being really old. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll show her a picture and I'll let you know what she says. She might fancy it. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week for... Find out if Becky's granny fancies the lead singer from Blur. Find out if Tasha has dated a convict 
and find out <laughs> if Emma has farted into her microphone again to make the demon noise. <laughs> right, so. <clears throat> I've written a really long word and now I'm scared about pronouncing it. <laughs> so he was known for his hard work and entrepreneurial spirit. And everybody went to this crime scene. Moreover, uh, forensic forsnick techniques. Oh, <laughs> forsnick techniques. Fuck you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you helped me earlier, so thank you. <laughs>